Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. We began this journey through what is one of the earliest books of the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, many months ago. And it was obvious from the beginning that the occasion that prompted this letter was serious. And we can tell this just by the way that Paul sharply addresses the Galatians from the onset and the opening words. Now, Galatians is about the only way we can be right with God. Hardly a more foundational, important subject matter than found in Galatians. I hope you've seen this over these months together. Galatians is written to legalists in order to call them to repentance. And it is also written to us recovering legalists who struggle with trusting in things that we do rather than Christ or more than Christ. So we come to the last eight verses of this epistle. And to this point, there's no doubt that Paul was dictating the letter to a secretary. That's how he had many of his books written. He was a Pharisee by training, and there were scribes by training, and he would probably walk and talk as the secretary would write his words. But here, as he comes to the end of his letter, he wishes to recapture the essence of what he has been writing about, and he grabs the quill from the secretary and with his own hands finishes these eight verses. So people who receive it would see Paul's writing. Big writing. He was probably almost blind. Big letters he wrote in. And that's what we have before us, these last eight verses. Hear now God's holy word. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray to ask you, as I did at the beginning of this study, for grace. Grace in understanding this wonderful epistle of Galatians. We've been studying together as a church family. I pray for ourselves as one who's a recovering legalist, preaching to other recovering legalist Pharisees who sometimes think that our efforts are part of what saves us or that our performance somehow makes you love us more. Lord, help us to look upon this letter to the Galatians and clearly recognize the way out of legalism. And that way is called the gospel. Father, when we are tempted to forget that Christ is all we need, in such times even now, help us to discover afresh the gospel of your free grace is so clearly revealed in the book of Galatians. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Remember, legalism, a word I keep using, is a concept or it is a term that describes trying to attain 
or maintain a righteous standing with God to try to get him to accept us or to keep accepting us. That's legalism, that if I keep legalities, if I keep rules or do things, he will accept me or love me more. And Paul is writing ardently to correct such thinking, because that only leads us to hell. We have to have our confidence somewhere other than our works, somewhere besides what we do. You know what? There are really two kinds of legalists in the church. There are hardcore legalists and there are recovering legalists. Hardcore committed legalists actually trust in their performance to ultimately be right with God. Very honestly, hardcore legalists, though they look like Christians on the outside, people might judge them as so because they're churchgoers. To be honest, they're not Christians at all. They trust in something other than Christ and are therefore not right with God, no matter how much it looks like it. That's a hardcore legalist. Recovering legalists, on the other hand, most of us qualify for this. We're believers, we trust in Christ, but we tend to lapse into thinking that we do things to make God love us more, maybe just even a little more. Paul forcefully writes, you might even say he fights for the gospel, the gospel of grace in this letter. Now, way back I asked you some questions. I said, you might be a legalist if. Let's think of those again. Now, I'm just saying you might be. I'm not saying you are. So don't get all offended when I say this and it might describe you. You might be a legalist if you think that God's love for you depends on what you do. You might be a legalist if you try hard to obey God and it irritates you that others think they can get away with avoiding the same level of dedication that you have. Might be a legalist. You feel guilty when you haven't prayed enough or spent enough quiet time with God. And I I just thought of this one. You feel guilty when you walk into Walmart, not for walking to Walmart, but you feel guilty when you walk into Walmart and you don't put anything in the Salvation Army bucket. You wonder what the person, the bell ringer, thinks of you. You can go in and buy stuff, but you can't put some change in the bucket. Maybe you're a legalist. You think in your heart of hearts that God is predisposed to being angry with you because of your sins. Your main goal, then, is to try to gain God's favor by doing things that will please him or appease him. Could be a legalist. Your sense of spiritual well-being is linked to some Christian leader or some membership with a group, a church. How about this? You tell your children not to do something. It's just a possibility. You tell your children not to do something in church or around other Christians who might see that you allow in your home just fine. You believe that exterior choices a person makes with what they wear, their hairstyle, their piercings, their tattoos. That is a clear indication of that person's character. You sometimes worry that people might take advantage of grace if it's preached too much. Pastor, people will think they could do anything. Stop saying all that. Could be a legalist. No, you are a legalist. After being around Christians for a while, you actually feel drained. Why? Because you've been putting up this false front and the smile hurts. How about when you miss a church service or activity or you look at the bulletin and you haven't checked off any of the service opportunities? Could be a legalist. You think that you'll likely get into heaven, even knowing you're far from perfect, but you've tried to be basically a good person 
And God has to take that into account, right? Even that feigned sense of humility actually evidences you're probably a legalist if you think that. How about this? You know you're not perfect or even as good as you could be, but compared to others, you're pretty good. If any of these descriptions fits you, you're battling legalism at some level. Maybe you're a hardcore legalist who isn't a Christian yet at all. Maybe you're a recovering legalist who struggles with trusting in self at some level. This book started with a tangible, sensible intensity on the part of Paul. When he writes right from the onset, I am astonished in verse 6 of chapter 1. I am astonished compared to all the pastoral greetings and all the other epistles. In Galatians, he says, I am shocked that you have so quickly deserted him who called you the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They had started strong trusting in Christ alone, but the Judaizers came in and said, you know what? You can't just have Jesus and be secure. You've got to do what we've been doing for thousands of years. Circumcision, uh, this this system of dietary laws, these certain holy days. Then you can know for sure. And Paul sees that and he says, I can't believe you bought that. You sold out the gospel that quick, Paul says. With intensity, the book starts and it never finishes. It comes at you the whole way. And this is what makes it so impressive that he, with his own hand, would grab that quill and he would write with large letters so that people can see without doubt who is writing it, whose authorship it is, what intention is there. And he writes the last eight verses. And the last eight verses, once again, reemphasize what this book has been saying from the beginning. And Philip Ryken says so well, for the gospel to be the gospel, for good news to be good news, the cross has to stand alone. That's what Galatians is about. Look what Paul says in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so many words Paul reinforces in these verses, two important realities, two important truths that we see throughout the book. First, confidence in human works or deeds is worthless. Secondly, the cross of Christ is the only basis for confidence. He drives these points home in the verses before us, and then he concludes with a word of blessing to the people. That's very different from the way he started the book. But let's look first at this, this point that he drives home in verse 12 and verse 13. He reminds us confidence in human works or deeds is worthless. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Again, a reference to those Judaizers who had infiltrated the fledgling church and tried to strap on them the yoke of burden of their background, their religious background and practice. And it's not that circumcision or their rites and rituals were wrong, but they were always meant to be really an evidence of a strengthening of the relationship with God that was by grace. But it had become the basis for their being right with God, and they were trying to strap that on these new Christians. Confidence in human works or deeds is worthless. And it's evidenced here, if you look at the second part of verse 12, and only in order that they may be uh, not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So you see their motivation for making these new believers follow these rules. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. We start to get a picture of the motivation of those who try to bring this legalism into the church. And it comes to a head in verse 15 when Paul says very explicitly, you could not mistake what he's saying, for neither circumcision counts 
for anything nor uncircumcision. The issue of whether you follow this rite or ritual has no bearing on your eternal salvation. That's not the point of it. No matter how much they tell you it is. The gospel was distorted in this context. It became no gospel at all. There was an addition to the message of Christ, which rendered the message of Christ inferior to trust in what you did. So what if Jesus did all he did, if it still depended upon you to do other things? It so lowered the value of what Christ did that it rendered it void. No gospel at all. Confidence in your own work is a worthless thing. You know something, you can identify some of the motivating uh, features of a legalist here. Look at verse 12. It says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. That, that's identifying feature number one. Legalists key on outward shows, and particularly what others think about them. Their standard is what other people think about them. So their standard is only as high as they think they can impress others. That's really what drives them. It's outward impressions, uh, what they look like on the exterior. Uh, that, that's a telltale sign of legalism, when I care more about what other people think than what God's standard says and reveals. That's what we have uh, in legalism. We struggle with this. They want to look righteous before people so that people would honor them. They seek the honor of man rather than a right relationship with God. They make a good showing. It oozes with a tone of insincerity. But you can see something else identified. Verse 12, they make a good showing in the flesh. And then it says, who would force you to be circumcised? Legalists want everyone else to conform to the rules and standards that they claim to keep. That goes right in hand with it. I, I keep these rules, and for you to be right, you better keep them too. And by all means, if someone might be having fun, there's a real problem there. Some, some sin's got to be committed. Joy? Why do you look so happy all the time? I'm not. You shouldn't be. And here are things you should do. Things you should conform to. Be like. They would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, this reveals something else. That legalists not only care about the exterior, the shows, what people think. Not only do they want to make everyone else conform to their rules. But they also are ultimately trying to preserve themselves and promote themselves. That's what they're doing. Uh, they make a show in the flesh. And they do so because in this particular context, these Judaizers who had come to Christ, or at least said they had come to Christ, they did not want to receive the wrath of their Jewish counterparts by claiming Christ. So if they kept looking Jewish and kind of disguised this Jesus component, that they wouldn't get the persecution that necessarily came to those, especially in the first century, who claimed the name of Christ. See, the cross in identifying with Jesus tended to invite persecution, and that's not what the legalist wants. The only pain the legalist is concerned with is maybe pain you experience following their rules. But certainly they don't want it themselves, so they preserve themselves by making you conform to their rules, and it also keeps them from being persecuted unduly in their minds, and it ultimately... Ultimately, it will promote themselves a good showing and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They desire in the second part of verse 13 to have you circumcised. Why? That they may boast in your flesh. They take credit for what has happened in your life. The glory comes to them for the improvement they've made upon you by rescuing you from your evil ways. 
This really reveals the motivation of those who had infiltrated the church, and it gives us yet another insight into why Paul writes so directly as he does. That's why he says, you foolish Galatians, at the beginning of chapter 3. These are his brothers and sisters, but he's being straight up with them. He's saying, you guys are getting totally duped here by these people who are only trying to inflate themselves, preserve themselves, promote themselves, avoid any kind of hardship. Also, we see most revealing, and I think we know this of our own selves, Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised, look what it says. Do not themselves keep the law. Wait a minute, hold up. They're making me do this, this, and this. But they themselves don't even follow it. It's for them. It's for their comfort. It's to make themselves feel all right by making you the standard that they can look at. Hypocrites. That's what they are. That's what we are. It's only Christ that changes this. The legalist stays in this hypocrisy, doesn't even keep the law themselves, but they want you to keep the law so they can boast in you. And Paul says most vividly, and to capture the whole thought of this first portion of the last eight verses, verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything. It doesn't make God love you even a little more. It doesn't count for anything. Nor uncircumcision. What counts? A new creation. Can you make the creation? No. God makes the creation. That's what counts. How does he do it? He does it by the cross. But we'll get there in a moment. Let's consider, before leaving this important first synopsis of this book, consider our attitude towards our works. We have to recognize the value of our deeds, of the things we do, our performance, they themselves, in themselves, before God, are worthless. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that what we do doesn't matter. On the other side of redemption, as the cross is applied to it, the things we do give glory to God. So they matter. But insofar as our being right with God, they are worthless. They don't make us right with God. Only Jesus can do that. And trust in those things, boasting in the stuff we do or the way we perform, is a vain trust and confidence. Oh, I go to church. I never miss church or I don't miss much. That's got to count for something, just a little. Come on, just a touch. Help an old lady across the street. Put some change in that bucket I was talking about. Hey, I obeyed my parents. I've been a faithful employee. Those around me have not. Hey, I went on a mission trip recently. I gave money towards missions. Hey, I got a warm fuzzy once when you said something. I teach Sunday school. Hey, I work in the nursery. I changed a diaper. I'm delivering gifts for the angel tree ministry this week. That's got to count for a little bit. Come on, just a touch, something. Hey, I come out to the work crew, at least for the first two months of the summer. Organize a bake sale. Get moms in touch together. Get the brothers together for a Bible study. I lit the Advent candle once. I shared the gospel with someone this week. I don't swear much. Hey, I didn't do what Tiger Woods did. And every time we think that, we say that what Jesus did is not enough. Because I at least did this, God. And what Paul says is that it counts 
for nothing. If we think that we are right with God because of these things, we're trusting in the wrong thing. If you think that God loves you just because you're performing one or all of these works, you're trusting in something that counts for nothing or doesn't count for anything. When we trust in our actions, that means we're boasting or we have confidence before God based on our performance at some level. When we boast in them, we, like Paul says, we are trusting in something that does not count for anything. Boasting literally means to speak with pride, often excessive pride, about oneself or something related to oneself. And it's empty boasting when we are really honest about what our works mean to God. This is where the transition is made, and Paul says abruptly in verse 14, but captures it so vividly we can, we can sense what he's saying. So we've analyzed our works and what we look, how we look at our works. He says in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast in any of that stuff. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. I don't care what they think anymore. I don't care what your assessment is of my rightness with God. It's not up to you. The cross means everything to me now. That's the lens through which I see. Not through the lens of my neighbor who judges me or decides whether I should do this or do that or wear this or wear that or perform this thing or not do that thing. It doesn't matter. I'm crucified to that. Because the cross is now my life. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It's not I, but Christ who lives in me. That's me now, Paul says. That's what I boast in, because it's not me, it's Christ. That's what we boast in. This is how he wants to summarize the whole book and end, with this thought in our minds, this realization. Reichen is right for the gospel to be the gospel. The cross has to stand alone. Boasting in the cross of Christ, this phrase that Paul uses, it means to have total and utter confidence in the cross. Now, what do I mean by the cross? What does Paul mean by the cross? He doesn't mean just simply the symbol of the cross. He refers to the specific atoning work of Jesus on the cross some 2,000 years ago for me and for you personally. The cross, as used by Paul here, refers not only to the several hours in which Jesus was crucified, but also the life that he lived up to the cross in his burial and his resurrection after the cross. This is what is meant by the word or the phrase, the cross. It's a complex of divine redemptive accomplishment that we trust in, that we believe is all we have to boast in. The cross means a complex, you might say, of divine work on our behalf. The cross of Christ refers to the activity of Jesus leading up to his time on the cross to prove his perfection, to obey God in a way that Adam and Eve did not and we do not. Thus making himself the worthy sacrifice as the perfect one to take our sins and go to the cross. He actively obeys his father, making himself the worthy, or showing himself to be the worthy sacrifice. It happened throughout his life. But then he passively, in his week of passion, he passively then takes upon himself the requirements of God for appeasing the wrath of God through death on a cross. He offers himself as a perfect sacrifice. He passively obeys the Father's requirements. He takes on my sins and your sins. And God pours out his just wrath upon his Son, who's bearing my sins, the Son whom he loves, 
and an exchange happens that's most amazing. The righteousness that Christ has, he gives to me as he takes my sin and God pours out his wrath on the Son in my stead. And because he loves his Son so much, his Son dies for me and the Lord God raises him from the dead and I'm united together with him by faith. And he accepts me the same way he accepts his Son. He could not forsake me because he cannot forsake his Son. That's ultimate security. That's boasting in the cross. So the cross doesn't just mean uh, praying in some superstitious way to a crucifix or thinking of some man who made a noble, noble sacrifice by dying for what he believed on the cross. That's not what the cross means. Not in Paul's mind. The cross means that Jesus did it for him and his life is now buried with Christ in God. It's now identified by his relationship with God purchased on the cross, the work of Christ thereon. It doesn't stop there. He proves, God proves Christ's work by raising him from the dead, sitting him at the right, his right hand, giving us utter confidence in the lordship of Christ and his saving work, the sovereign hand of God and the work of the Holy Spirit to apply it. Only the work of Christ and faith in him can give us any real confidence. The cross of Christ is the only true basis for confidence. All other hopes, all other boasting, all other dependence is in vain. John Stott, who runs a, writes a wonderful commentary on this portion of Scripture, says the following. He says, what is there about the cross of Christ which angers the world and stirs them up to persecute those who preach it? Good question. He says this. Christ died on the cross for us sinners, becoming a curse for us. So, Stott says, the cross tells us some very unpalatable truths about ourselves. Namely, that we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's laws, law and cannot save ourselves. I mean, who wants to hear that today, right? That's why they don't like that message. That's why I didn't like it before God made me like it. Don't tell me that about myself. Scott continues, Christ bore our sin and curse precisely because we could, we could gain release from them in no other way. That bothers me to think I can't help myself at least a little. Stock continues, if we could have been forgiven by our own good works, by being circumcised, keeping the law, we may be quite sure that there would have been no need for the cross. But every time we look at the cross, and what he says here is so wonderful, listen closely to what he says. Every time we look at the cross, it seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing, your curse that I am suffering, your debt that I am paying, your death that I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. Again, Paul says, and I hope you say with him, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My brothers and sisters, Paul has taught us by the Holy Spirit that in Christ Jesus there is true freedom. We are free from the wrath of God against our sin. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin over us. We are free of the burden of the guilt of our sin that so weighs us down. We are free from the load of stress upon us that tells us that we must perform to be loved and accepted by God. We are free from keeping rules to make God happy 
or to love us more. We are no longer encumbered by the anxiety of wondering, will God accept us? Does he love us? Will we make it to heaven? Christ, there is freedom from all these life-destroying weights and burdens. And the beauty of it is it frees us to serve him out of reaction and in response to this great grace. We're free to serve him now. We can. He won't love you less when you mess up. There is no greater motivator than the surety of God's love for us shown in Christ. There's no greater motivator. I can do all sorts of things to guilt you into changing for a couple days. I know what will happen. You'll return to whatever it is worse. But I know that the gospel of true grace, that will actually change you. Then you'll start obeying. It's the only thing that does it. It's the only thing that works. And where should we boast when that happens? In the cross. That's where it comes from. Paul closes the epistle in verses 16 and following, 17 and 18 in particular. But he makes a great statement in verse 16 to summarize. And as for all who walk by this rule, this rule, the gospel that he has displayed, there's a walking in the gospel, a constant reacquaintance with the truth of the cross as our boasting. To those who walk in this, peace and mercy be upon them. Peace and mercy belong only to those who understand and adhere the gospel. And upon the Israel of God, showing that the Israel of God is truly made up of those who understand the gospel. That's the Israel of God. That's the definition of Israel. All who believe the gospel. We have an obligation that God helps us with by his grace to walk in it. And he gives us means of grace to continue in it. In verse 17 he says, From now on let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. He isn't saying he doesn't want to hear of any troubles anymore. Are you so burdened me, Galatians? Please don't tell me about this again. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, please adhere this appeal to not give into this again, to this legalism. Stuff's going to come up, but don't let it be about the gospel. That's what he's saying. Paul, in himself, bore on his body physical scars of one who boasted in the cross alone, and he bore the mark of Jesus as anywhere he went. He was a bondservant of Christ. And that came with a price. Just as we bear the identity of Christ and his cross, and it always invites persecution. He gives a final, very simple benediction, verse 18, which ends our study. He says that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. How, how very gentle compared to the start of this epistle where he says, I am astonished how quickly you have abandoned. He ends by saying the grace, that unmerited favor that falls upon those who really only deserve wrath, the grace of our Lord Jesus. Be with your spirit. Be free of the burden, the anxiety, the weight, the enslavement to works. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. James Boyce said, and he's right, Galatians asserts that only through the grace of God and Jesus Christ is a person enabled to escape the curse of sin and live a new life, not in bondage, not in bondage or in license, but in a genuine freedom of mind and spirit through the power of God. Let's pray. Father, as we finish the study of Galatians, liberate us from our legalism. 
For the hardcore legalists here, I pray that you would unshackle their hearts by your grace today. Give them a clear vision of the uncrossable chasm between them and you and make them to trust Christ alone for their eternal salvation. Make them to have no confidence in their goodness or ability to keep rules. Save the hardcore legalists today by your grace through faith in Christ. Lord, for the many recovering legalists here along with me, I pray that you would give us a fresh understanding of the totality of your gospel. Empower us to stand anew in the freedom with which our Lord Jesus Christ has made us free. Lord, make us to boast only in the cross of Christ. Please do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us together turn in our hymnals and respond in song by singing 193. Let's stand and we'll sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent as the the elders come to prepare the table of our Lord.